Thank you so much, Ensign Rents, uh, Brady, for reading. Looking good. I'll just say what all of us were thinking. When I uh, think back over my many, many, and I think Chris might want me to say many, 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 many years of going to school, <laughs> I have uh, one teacher who still remains in my mind my favorite teacher. It was uh, Dr. John Woodbridge. And uh, Dr. Woodbridge continues to teach church history right now in Chicago at the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And uh, a man like this could have only grown up in one place. He grew up at the Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena. So he was happy when he found that I was coming here. He was not only the best teacher I ever had, he was the hardest. Right, Chris? The hardest. I remember one, and and Chris took the class as well, one uh, general church history class where we covered... I'll tell you, hundreds of years of what was going on in church history. We read literally thousands of pages of, of, of scholarship about church history. We received additional notes about church history. And we had the notes that we took from his rich and wonderful lectures. And inevitably, anybody who took his class would come up to him and say, try to say something like this. Uh, Dr. Woodbridge, we've covered so much material. Um, what is it? that you would really like us to know what do you want us to focus on? And he always said the same thing. Everything. You should know everything. But then sometimes, in the midst of one of his lectures, he would stop and say something like this. We've been going over a lot of things over the past few weeks, but right now, I want to boil down some of the most important things that I, I want to make sure you don't forget. And I'll tell you, We knew that everything might be on the test, but we knew that this would be on the test. And you could just see the students, and this was before we had iPads, you could just see students just starting to write feverishly because we knew that this was important. Now, I thought of that when we came to the text that we come to today. Because, you know, for 430 years, uh, while God's people, the Israelites, were in Egypt, sometimes it, it felt as if God was silent. But then starting in about Exodus chapter 3, there was a whirlwind of activity. God met Moses there out in the wilderness. He called him to go back into Egypt, and he did it. And he went and met with the Israelites, and then he met with Pharaoh, and then we had these ten plagues that went on. I, I was wanting us to feel this even as, do you know, in two sermons, we have covered ten chapters of the book of Exodus, and they're not even short chapters Because I wanted us to get this feel of this whirlwind of activity that is happening. And even in the text that Brady read for us today, he started with all of this detail, tremendous amount of detail about exactly what the people had to do in order to celebrate the Passover, that they would get out of Egypt and be delivered from slavery. And we didn't even read the other part. Tremendous amount of detail, even before they'd been rescued. All this detail about how they are to celebrate what God had done. And they were to listen to it and to obey it. So I can almost feel like the people must have been overwhelmed with all of this. And then in just two verses, in Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13, uh, it seems as if God just stops for a moment. And he said, in the midst of all this that's happening, I want to boil down what it is that's important And what it is that as you gather and remember that you dare not forget. What we're going to be looking at today is what I call one of the great, I call them boil down texts. 
in which all of this material that we have is boiled down so that we can remember the most important things. And let me read you again just a few of the verses of what God has to say. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And the blood that's to be put on the doorposts will be a sign for you on the houses where you are that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, in those few sentences, God refers to three things about himself in which I think he is boiling down the things that we must remember. And today we are going to be remembering an activity based upon this text, which Jesus bases on this text. And I think that these are the three truths that I want to make sure that we dare not forget. The three statements are these. God says, I am the Lord. Second, I will bring judgment. But third, I will pass over you. The truths are about who God is. I am the Lord. What God must do to be consistent with who he is. I will bring judgment. But then we're going to get to a hallelujah part. What God is willing to do. I will pass over you. So we're going to listen to these things. I hope that you'll write feverishly. And then we are going to take time in obedience to remember. So first, who God is. Boiling it all down, God declares, as he has before, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Now, for those visiting, um, Moses at this point was about 80 years old. In his first 40 years, he had lived uh, in Egypt and mostly in Pharaoh's house. So you know he had learned about all these gods of Egypt probably had become a bit of a pluralist himself. The next 40 years he'd lived out in the wilderness where they also had many gods. And then this one particular day, a voice speaks to him out of a burning bush. And you can almost imagine why it is that Moses had to say, well, who are you? I, I don't know your name. Wh which one of these gods that I've heard about my whole life are you? I mean, I don't know you. And out of that burning bush, you remember what God said, I am who I am. So when you go back and tell your own biological people who it is who has spoken to you, simply tell them, I am. I am the Lord. I am the one who spoke into this world and everything came into being. I am the God over your forefathers. I met personally with Abraham and told him that I am going to make his line your people. A people who would bless not just one nation, but all nations. I'm also the God of Jacob, another forefather. I wrestled with him because he was a deceiver. <laughs> but I showed grace and mercy to him. And I drew him back in again and I made him into a striver, one striving for my will. Simply tell them that I am the Lord over all that is. See that? It is powerful. And then in this whirlwind of activity, when he went back into Egypt, if you were here last week, do you remember? God sent ten carefully chosen plagues that demonstrated that he indeed is sovereign over, in control over anything or anyone a person might pretend is the real God. The very first one, um, Hopi, was the God of the Nile. 
They, they, they worshipped that God, and God turned that so-called God into blood. A Hecate, you remember, the God of procreation, pictured as a frog. God says, that's not the real God of procreation. And if you want to see procreation, I'm going to show you some frogs. They overtook the entire nation, and then God showed his control by being the only one who could subdue them. Hator, uh, the cattle god, uh, the cow god, the god that we said of, of beauty and music and dance, which I still can't figure out exactly. He said, I am the god over that so-called god too, for your cattle will become emaciated and even die. And Pharaoh, I know that the main god your people worship is Ra, the sun, and you pretend to be that god, the sun. But let me tell you who is the one who is the god over the sun. I am the one who spoke light into being. And I can speak darkness into this world too. And he did. So as we look at this, when we come to chapter 12, verse 12, you say, this is what you must know. If you're going to enter into my presence, and if you're going to pray that I will guide you and stand beside you, I am the Lord. It's what our brothers and sisters throughout history have asked us to acknowledge in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe that He is the maker of heaven and earth. And I'll tell you, that's not the way people in our world like to think about the way that God is. Now, I've made this point before, but I think this point boils it down and makes sure that we look at this. Here in Southern California, I keep finding people who, who, who want to be religious, but the religion that they want is the, to be able to shape God to be who they want him to be, to get God to do what we want him to do. And sometimes people even show up at church and say, it's not working for me. I can't get God to whatever, give me this job or make me successful. And in fact, what we really have bought into is the world's whole narrative, the whole story about how you and I are to have the good life. Out there, the world sort of gets us this story. All right, just here's the way to have the good life. Uh, go, to, go to the best school. Uh, get the best degree that you can get. When you get out, maybe you'll get married, but be sure to get the best job, right? And the best job is the one that makes the most money. And maybe you'll be able to have children, but get a house, and then a bigger house, and then an even bigger house. And then you start looking toward retirement. Make sure you have a, a big bank account so that you can retire. And so we look out there in our world, and we see all sorts of people who have that and haven't found life. And yet somehow we get sucked into the, the narrative that that's where it's really found. And so we even come to church to try to give God, get God to give us that. That really becomes our God. Does this make sense to you? And we try to, to, to reshape God. To make Him the one, not who is the Lord over our lives and over everything, but that somehow we can tap into this power and give us our real God which is our success. And I think that that was true of some of the people in Israel in the book of Exodus. And I'll tell you why. We'll see it a little bit later, but I'll tell you why. When they get out of slavery and they go into the wilderness, instead of trusting the Lord, they come to points where they look back and they say, I want to go back to Egypt. Now, why do they want to do that? Because deep, deep down, they still thought that life was to be found in what the other Egyptians had. They wanted to go back there without the slavery, of course. God, get us out of that. We don't want that anymore. But we want to have what they have. Because they started thinking that life is to be found not simply in obeying the Lord and knowing that He is who He is. 
The Lord who has made us and who loves us and alone when we follow us, him, can give us a life. Instead, we want to sort of reshape him into somebody other than who he is. Now, I've been thinking about that. I think one of the reasons why these very specific instructions are given. Do you know that we have more instructions about how they're supposed... Did you notice that as Brady was reading? All these careful instructions about how to take the lamb, how to cook the lamb, how to eat the lamb, how to dress when you're eating the lamb. And then later you're going to get these very specific instructions. God knows he's going to get them out of Egypt and out of slavery about how they are not to forget and to obey. And I think the reason is this, that God wanted to make sure that they knew that faith in him meant obedience to him. And so that they would carefully know what he expected of them and uh, see if they would really have him to be who he says he is, the Lord. And yet, as I've thought about it, we keep trying to reshape God. We think we can make God to be a better God than he really is. I've, I've been trying to think of how to illustrate this, and I have the silliest illustration, and I'm afraid it's the only thing you're going to remember from the whole sermon. But I'm going to show it to you anyway. And it's the one time, Chris, I didn't ask for permission, but I think it'll be okay. What if Chris saw a picture of me? Now, that isn't even all that recent. You can see the damage that being here has done as I've gotten older. <clears throat> what if Chris looked at that picture? And she said, Greg, you know, I've decided that I can make a few improvements. I can make a few. And so here's the way now. I'm going to make some. Here's the way now you are. And, and then this next picture. She says, okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to reshape you. and make you. I'm going to see you this. This is the way you're going to be from now on. Now, if you're younger, if you're younger, and you say, George Clooney, he's already an old guy. Maybe you would want to make, if you have a boy, like this. <laughs> now, now that you're awake and looking at that. Um, when you look at that and think about that, and we think... Isn't it offensive if a person who says they love you wants to make you to be somebody different from who you are? You can never live up to that. And it's especially foolish when we try to do that to God. But we do. And I'll tell you, when we refashion him in the way we want him to be, he will not be a good God. We'll just mess it up. He is who he is. His ways are different from ours, but they are always better. And that's why when we boil down what it means to come and worship God, it always is going to start here with who God is. And God declares, I am the Lord. You need to come to know me as I have revealed myself to be. I am who I am. And I am the Lord. First, boil down truth. Number two. Because of who he is, what he must do. And the phrase is, I will bring judgment. Specifically upon all the gods. But in that you have to recognize that every evil or sin in this world really comes from putting something in God's place. There's a reason why the first commandment is the first commandment. No gods before the real God. Only one God. When, when he's shoved out, that's where the evil comes in and, and where it must be punished. But you know that this phrase, I was going to see if people started walking out, I will bring judgment upon evil, is for Southern California thinking, just about the most offensive teaching in the Bible. 
We would rather think that there is no such thing as judgment upon evil. In fact, many times we don't even want to really think that there is true goodness and true evil itself. Now, on one side, we're often very thankful that judgment comes against evil. I mean, this past week, do you follow the news that when we read about what happened in Syria, where, where the military powers and the political powers would come into homes and thousands of, of children all the way up through senior adults, who were helpless, were just slaughtered without any reason and any excuse. We look at that and we think, that has to be dealt with. That, we can't just let evil proliferate. And yet, when we humbly and truthfully acknowledge our own lives, we know there is evil in our own lives. We may try to say, well, I'm not as bad as that, so God will let me get by with it. But deep down... We want evil to be punished as long as the punished, evil that is punished is what somebody else has done. A lot of us, I don't know how you feel even now as we take up this point, I find a lot of people come to church hoping that the pastor will preach a sermon which God is sort of pictured as a kindly old grandfather who doesn't really care how we live. I feel that sometimes. Probably a whole lot more people if Pastor Greg would get up and always sort of give us a a picture of God that we can walk out just feeling good about ourselves as we are. Sort of God always with a smile on his face, even when there is evil in this world. And God says, I am who I am. And one of the things that I am is I am a good, moral, and holy God. That means if I am the God who has all power and I'm a moral and just God, then evil must be dealt with. Or we can never have goodness and evil in this world. And if we try to think, well, my God wouldn't punish evil, then, then your God is somebody that you have created out of your imagination. Because that's not the God that Jesus revealed, and that is not the God of the Bible. God says, I am who I am, and I am a moral and just God. Now, for us to make any sense out of the fact that God was going to punish evil in Egypt. We have to really believe that evil exists. Do you? Uh, There are a lot of people in our world who don't seem to. Um, And in fact, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I remember when I had just finished college, Alexander Solzhenitsyn had been able to get out of the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union and for the first time in his life have interaction with uh, Western thinkers. And he, in one of his early lectures... And one of his most famous now was shocked by the fact that so many did not believe in evil. I put up here a part of what he wrote. He said the existence of evil is a joke now in the Western world. Good and evil have become an almost old-fashioned concepts here. But they are very real. They, they are concepts from a sphere higher than us. And we dare not deny them. Getting involved in base, petty, short-sighted political games treating evil as it does not exist. And in this, he was saying that the Western world saw evil in so many places of the world and just said, well, that's just the way they are. We shouldn't speak into that. And he says, there is real evil and it cannot be ignored. Here's what he said. We have to recognize that the concentration of world evil and the tremendous force of hatred are real and they flow throughout the world. And we have to stand up against evil and not hasten to give to it, give to it, give to it, everything that it wants to swallow. So I've just thought, tell the Jewish people at Auschwitz that evil doesn't exist. 
with over 6 million of their people killed. Look at the 20 million Ukrainians killed in Russia, the 1.5 Armenians, the 1.7 Cambodians killed in genocides. Go up and say, evil doesn't exist. See if you get a hearing. I'm just telling you, evil is real. And for this world ever to be the world that God says he is going to bring about without pain and suffering, without war, for, this, for that ever to happen, evil must be judged. So God says, I am who I am. I am a moral and just God. I am patient and I'll wait for people to turn back to me. In fact, sometimes don't we wonder why God is so patient? Uh, one question that fills so much of the scripture is, how long, O oh Lord, until you deal with these things in this world? So, so God came to a point where he had to judge Egypt, and it resulted in death. It may be hard for us to understand until we pull ourselves back again and remember how long this had gone on. We don't even have all the detail, but all of the countless numbers of Hebrew boys who had been slaughtered because of the paranoia of, of, of the growth of this people. How then the entire Jewish people were treated worse than animals, put in slavery, and the slavery was growing as it always does because evil keeps abounding. It was growing worse and worse and worse. You know, we often think that if we can just get the evil out of our system, then we won't do it anymore. But you know what happens? The more we do evil, the more we have to do it. It just keeps proliferating. And then remember that even with that happening, God had sent messengers with a warning, Moses and Aaron. And even then, he sent them nine other plagues, growing in intensity. But all that happened was the heart became harder and harder and harder. I showed you that last week until finally God says, I will harden his heart because the time for judgment has come. So, so the lesson is this. God is who he is. He is a God of justice. But even when he judges, he never does so without warning, ample warning. And the trouble is, for, for you and me, so many times God speaks into our hearts, doesn't he? And instead of us saying yes, opening our hearts, we harden our heart to God. In fact, we make all sorts of excuses. I think I can get by with this. This isn't that big a deal. God won't deal seriously with me. But I'll tell you, when that hard-heartedness sets in, the only course left is judgment. And that fact of human nature growing harder, as God calls us, hasn't changed in three and a half thousand years. I keep telling you, it's a dangerous thing to show up at church. Because when we open this word, it's the God who made the universe who speaks into our lives. And again... You and I, all of us, and we're going to remember it later, have all engaged in doing wrong. And that's why the gospel message is what you and I need is a savior. You and I need rescue because we know that that judgment should come to us. We need a savior. I feel this temptation in the American church to repackage the gospel message so that it's more palatable. And maybe later on we'll sneak it in that people need to be rescued from sin. So that we're tempted to sort of preach this sort of message always. Come to Jesus and he'll make you happy or he'll give you a wonderful life. And, and he does. It's just different from what you would have imagined. Or we, we want to reshape it. Come to Jesus and he'll fill a God-shaped hole in your life. And that's true. That's true. Or, or, or come to Jesus and he'll bring you into a wonderful family called the church. 
And he does. All those things are true. But there's a part of the gospel that Jesus said, that God says, when I boil it down, never forget it. And that is that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And Paul would see it. And, and even though he had done all the right things in the eyes of his people, he said, I'm the worst of them, which offers us hope. That if God rescued Paul, he can rescue us. And I'll just declare it to you. If the rescue of God is sufficient for my sins, it is for yours. It is for yours. The good news is that Jesus came out of love for us. Who will acknowledge that we are sinners, that we need forgiveness, that we need to be rescued. So God is who he is. Number one, boil down truth. And a part of who God is, is he's holy and just. But he also loves us. Knowing that we need a Savior, He has found a way to rescue us. Which brings me to the third and final truth. And that is what this powerful, holy God is willing to do. And I love the phrase, I will pass over you. What what we find in Exodus 12 is a message that happens over and over again in Scripture. God giving a warning, this, this is going to happen, but then providing, giving a provision that makes it so that we can have the opportunity of having an escape from that, the great escape I've been calling it. It's not just an escape from that, but to something that's so much better. And what we have in Exodus 12 and 13 is that the people of Israel had enough faith in him to obey precisely all of those details that he asked them to do. It is an obedience that flows out of faith. That we have to have that, that so many times, even as Jesus said, yes, faith in me, but faith in me is that I must be the Lord of your life. And there are going to be many people who just sort of showed up at church and then they're going to stand in front of me and they'll say, well, we believed in you. And I'll have to say, well, you called me Lord, Lord, but you never did a thing I told you to do. It, it's a call for us to surrender in faith to who he is. But God says, if you will place that kind of faith in me and follow this, when the judgment comes for evil. I will pass over you. Now, um, I can imagine that many of the Israelites would be like some of us to say, well, I'm a child of Abraham and I've been faithful to Jehovah even all these years. And so I don't really need to put that blood on the doorposts. Because, well, I, of course, I've been to church often and, and I did it back when I was six. So I don't need to do that. Can't you imagine that happening? You read through the rest of Exodus, which we will see, and we'll find that the Israelites were just as obstinate and hard-hearted as the people in Egypt were. And yet, the obvious implication of Exodus 12 and 13 is if they hadn't put the blood over the doorpost, that the judgment that came on the Egyptian homes would have come to theirs as well, right? But it didn't, which brings up a big question in my sermon. At least I have it. Anybody think of any? You probably have a lot of questions, but I'll bring up the one that I have. How is it that God says he is who he is, therefore he must judge evil, and yet that judgment did not come upon the Israelites when they were still obstinate and engaged in it? How is God going to declare the people who were unjust just, and people who are sinners right before him. How is God going to do that and be consistent with who he is? I'll tell you how he's not going to do it. He's not going to say, okay, well, they're children of Abraham. I'll just sort of right now ignore their sins. 
Kind of like uh, Voltaire. You remember Voltaire said, um, uh, God will forgive you. That's his job. I saw that on a bumper sticker here. God will forgive. That's his job. That's not uh, what happened here. And, and, and it's also not that they had somehow earned personally the right uh, to, to uh, be good enough that they don't have to be judged. No, no, no. How is God going to be this holy God who is who he is, who will punish evil, and only some who have engaged in it are punished and others are not? That's where the surprise of all surprises that permeates the Bible comes in, that God himself always finds a way of escape that is consistent with who he is. It's not that he pretends that people are innocent when we aren't. It's not some blanket pardon. Instead, he finds a way to make a provision available. And and it's something available for all who would receive it. If you look at verses 48 and 49, even for those who are not Israelites, the aliens, if they were willing to trust and obey, they could have found rescue as well. And, And Exodus 12 tells us that the key is the provision of a lamb. What difference does a lamb make? You with me still? Um, Imagine, use your imagination. Imagine being one of the Israelites the morning after the judgment had taken place. Uh, Inside every Egyptian home, there is a dead son. Inside every Israelite home, we have a dead lamb. Now, thinking very simply, what would you think? This is not hard. What do you think? Isn't the obvious implication that the lamb died in the place of the son? Is that clear? And in this, as I said, I wanted to come to these boil-down truths. In this, we see two powerful truths about the gospel that followers of Jesus have grabbed hold of and passed on to ever since Jesus came. Now, the theological terms... And I know some people are bored out of their minds by theology, but theology is not boring. Theologians are boring. Theology is not boring. Okay, and two words I want you to grab hold of. The first is a beautiful word called propitiation. And that the judgment that comes, comes as it will from God because he is who he is. It comes toward the evil. But propitiation means it is turned aside from us, turned aside and onto something else. And the judgment that was due to the people of Israel came, but it was turned aside from them and their homes and onto the Lamb. When the blood was seen on the doorpost, the message is that in that home a death had already occurred and justice was satisfied. Is that clear? God can find a way to turn aside the judgment to us. And the second word is the word substitution. The death of the lamb was something that occurred in a very real sense instead of the death to the firstborn son. The lamb was a substitute. And the penalty that should have come, the lamb, that spotless, blameless lamb, bore it for the family. Now again, as simply as I can put it, This will be harder for the women than the men. But try to imagine that you're the firstborn son in the home in Israel. The next morning you wake up. I'm alive. But you hear the weeping and wailing. Uh, You go in and you see at the hearth the charred ashes of the lamb that had been burned. 
in keeping with God's instructions. You look on the doorpost and you see the blood. And, and what do you think? Don't you think that lamb died for me? That lamb died in my place. And I'm telling you, that's why God said this is never to be forgotten. In the midst of all of the activity, there is a great escape for those of us who have fallen short of what God made us to be that has provided a means of forgiveness and a means of rescue. And he knew that we would have to have times, that they would have to have a Passover event. And so he gave them instructions, you must gather regularly to remember, because he knew that we would forget. He knew they'd get into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land and they'd try to take over their own lives and they'd recreate him as he was and they would think, is everything just fine? God doesn't care how I live. He knew that. And he called upon them to remember Passover. So now we come to a time of remembrance. Do you know it's based upon this Passover? Um, Centuries after Moses, Jesus, on one evening, uh, took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And after he'd broken it, he said, this is my body and it is given for you. And then he would take up the wine and he would say, and this is my blood and it is poured out for you. And it's no coincidence that quite intentionally, Jesus did this on the Passover. Jesus intentionally set it up that way. Read Luke 22 and over and over again, the Passover meal, the Passover meal. The only difference in that Last Supper, that Passover meal of Jesus, is that one thing was missing. You look at that. Where's the lamb? There's no lamb that is there. And Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood given for you. Do you get the point? What Jesus is declaring to us is for us always to remember that you and I are in a situation of danger. That we've engaged in things that make us so that we're not ready to stand before God. And Jesus would declare, and that's why I've come. Luke 19.10, I came to seek and to save the lost. Now I know for you and me it's hard for us to admit that we've done anything serious enough that would demand God's judgment, but we have. But God, as always, has provided a means of escape. He came himself. Only one has lived the life that we all should have lived. But none of us has, but he did. And he was willing to die in our place. And the judgment that we deserve comes because God is who he is. But it's turned aside from us and onto him he bears it. He becomes our substitute. And Christians, when we've thought about this, have celebrated this throughout 2,000 years. Paul would talk about it. He would say, Jesus Christ is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. Uh, Peter would also say that we were redeemed with the blood of the Lamb. The only one who is perfect without blemish. And Jesus would say, this is my body broken for you. So there's my boil down message. Uh, what is it as we remember what Jesus told us to remember that we dare not forget in the midst of everything? 
Pastor, what about the Bible should I especially focus on? Everything. We should focus on everything. But if I'm really boiling it down, what is it I pray we will hold on to here at Lake Avenue Church? Who God is. He is the Lord. Make sure he's the Lord of your life. What God must do to be who he is. Evil must be punished. And then we say, but where's their hope for me? And God says, I'm willing to do something. I will provide a lamb. I'm going to ask our stewards if they would go to the tables. We're going to remember communion together. And what I'm going to want us to do is what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Let me give you a few instructions. I'm going to ask those of you who can to come out and you'll see tables there in the balcony as well. There's some in the front, some in the middle. We have stewards who are there to come and take the elements and take them back to where you're sitting and hold on to them because I think we need to receive this together. So I, I will ask you to do that. For those visiting, this is the Lord's table. So if uh, you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior and you're ready even in this time to say, ah, oh, yes, I want to recommit myself to your Lordship, then come and receive the provision of the Lord. Because there's something that unites us here. It's not that some of us have sinned and need this and others haven't, right? We are all desperately in need of the mercy of God. But we are also people to whom he has lavished his mercy and his love. And it's all seen in what Jesus did on the cross. So as God leads you, step out, go back then to your, and then we will receive these elements together in remembrance of him. Let me lead us in prayer.